art fair, preferably in New York, and to leave their wallet at home and don't even think about buying anything until they can figure out what they like and what direction they want to go. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Today we're speaking with Ron Pizzuti. Ron is based in Columbus, Ohio, and he and his wife Anne's collection reflects their passion for contemporary art and has been amassed over the past 40 years. Ron serves on the board of trustees for the Wexner Center Foundation and is an honorary trustee of the Columbus Museum of Art. Ron and Anne's collection, over 2,400 works, is installed in their homes in Columbus, Florida, and New York City. In addition, their nonprofit organization, the Pizzuti Collection in Columbus, features a rotating schedule of exhibitions from the family collection, ranging from painting and sculpture to film and photography. Promoting community involvement and openness to the public, the organization is dedicated to fostering education and diversity through its programming. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. Welcome Ron and thank you for joining us today for Collect Wisely. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure. I mean, we've known each other um, many, many years, and I think every time we see each other, we talk about something that's an immediate work in front of us, probably, or something that's happening in our families. And I don't really know your story as well as I should do, so perhaps we'll take you right back to the beginning and ask you what the first work of art you ever bought was. First work was a print by Carol Appel called Circus People. And I bought it from Eva Glimpshire, who was Arnie Glimpshire's mother, who had a branch of the Pace Gallery in Columbus, Ohio. Everything that Arnie showed in New York automatically got shipped to Columbus, whether the buyers on the other end wanted the works immediately or not. And he was very loyal to his mother, and uh, she became a, a very early mentor to us. So, and we still own the work, been many places, been in our kids' houses, been in our home, and it's now has a permanent location in the library of the Pizzuti Collection. Fantastic. So it's enshrined as the beginning of oh, the collection. Ab- ab- absolutely. Do you remember what you paid for it? <laughs> I do remember what I paid for it. I paid $900, uh, and it was a stretch at that time. We paid $100 down, $100 a month. And when we got it paid down by 50%, we were permitted to buy something else from Mrs. Glimpshire. Well, more importantly, were you permitted to take it home and enjoy yes. it? Yes. She was like an <laughs> Armenian rug dealer. She, she, once you got it home, she knew that it would never come back. But you, you at that point owned more than 50% of it, so you took it home. No, I, got it, I took it home after the first $100. Oh, was wow. Paid. After yes. the first, well, that's a very trusting art deal. Yeah, she, was, uh, she, was very, uh, she worked very hard to get, uh, to get uh, contemporary art in the hands of, uh, of Columbusites and was moderately successful. Arnie was very good to her. He had uh, 
every every artist that came to Columbus, every artist that he showed, were pretty much forced to, to visit Mom. It was fortuitous for us because we got to know all these folks, Jim Dine and, and uh, a fellow named Nicholas Krushnik and Ernest Trova, Louise Nevelson, Warhol. So the gallery started in Columbus and he moved to New York? No, or? the gallery started in, in, uh, in New York. And actually, I think it actually started in Boston and then he moved it to New York. And uh, they were they spent some time in Mansfield, Ohio, which is a city, I think 50, 50 some odd miles north of Columbus. So Arnie's two brothers, one of whom recently died, live in Columbus. And she was got close to Warhol. Uh, Warhol came to town twice a year, and we had a, uh, a Polynesian restaurant in the city called the Kahiki, and uh, it was a very kitschy, kitschy restaurant. And he went there every time. They had these mystery drinks with little. Paper, paper umbrellas. So one day, uh, Eva called. I don't think Eva ever remembered my name, even though I was spent a lot of time there. And uh, she called the house about 4.30 in the afternoon, and she said, would you and the wife, she never remembered Ann's name either, but would you and the wife like to have dinner with Andy Warhol tonight? And I, so Ann was sitting there. I said, would you like to have dinner with Andy Warhol? And, he's, and Ann's response was, I don't really have anything to say to him. So we said, <laughs> we, we declined. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our opportunity to uh, to spend an evening with him. Because you had way better things to do in Columbus. What motivated you to start collecting? Was somebody was there somebody in the family who had collected in, in the past or No. Uh, my family you know, had uh, we had two pieces of uh, I put them in quotes art. One we had a we had a a, a, a picture of the Last Supper. On poster board, and, and it was, it was uh, framed in a plastic frame, and we had what we thought was a poster of the uh, of the New York skyline. I learned later that it wasn't, and uh, that was also a, a Woolworth purchase. So it never really it didn't didn't. It grow, was Cincinnati, grow, and nobody had told you. <laughs> I think it was a made up, it was a made up city, but what really uh, really started is actually Frank Stella. And uh, in, a, in another life, I spent a lot of time in Europe, and I spent a lot of time in Paris and Rome and London and uh, in, in the fashion capitals of, of Europe. And, and uh, I, I went to a, uh, a small gallery in Montmartre one night and uh, saw a Frank Stella painting. It was uh, a, one of us was a protractor, and it was uh, all I could remember. It was so beautiful, I just just couldn't get it out of my mind. And, and, uh, was Anne with you? Or? No, she wasn't. Uh, one of the fellows I worked with was with me. So, uh, it's actually Les Wexner. Anyway, it was ten thousand dollars, and I couldn't. I, mean, I was making, I think I was making a thousand dollars a month at the time. So the thought of spending that much money on on anything, right. you know, I drove a used car. And so I came back to New York. I went to the New York Public Library and looked up Mr. Stella, and uh, got. Just taken by him and started to learn about him and started to follow him. And then it was several years before we ended up buying a, a, a real painting. And how much were they when that about a kid? Uh, I think I think the first painting uh, was called uh, Newell's Hawaiian Shearwater Number no. One. It was from this exotic bird series. I bought it from the Elder Gallery, probably in the high twenties. 
if you if you'd wanted to buy that painting that night in Montmartre, would you have had to phone Anne and say, you know, what what do you think? In other words, do you collect together, or is it something that you, you know you you both have very independent? No, we really don't. On? We really don't collect together. If I had bought that painting that night, I, the phone call probably would have been <laughs> to a divorce lawyer, not to my wife. So. <laughs> but but uh, no, we just it was just it was just turned out the painting was actually a maquette. Uh, oh. And I didn't know what a maquette was at the time. And we now own the uh, the original. And oh, we, we bought it from Bill Rubin several fantastic. years later, and it's it's hanging hanging in our library at home. So it's it's 120 inches in diameter. It's so if, if if it's not it, your print, it's your principal focus. So Anne is the sort of silent partner in this. Does Anne she has the power well, no, of veto. No, she's not. She's not so silent. She <laughs> she's has, not silent. She has veto power. We brought a uh, Lucas Samaras painting home once, and it's now hanging in our son Joel's home over his desk and and looked at it and says please don't hang that in my house <laughs> and it was pretty morbid looking and uh, it was a I don't know four or five panel black painting with typical Lucas Samara style with double sets of eyes double sets of, of, of gnarly teeth and it was, uh, it was pretty pretty gross but Joel likes it you know it's, it's interesting I mean it's very easy to look back now 40 years on and and say oh you were so smart to be collecting contemporary art 40 years ago but in truth, 40 years ago, there were not that many people collecting contemporary art. So what was it that you drew you? You could have been collecting, you know, Renaissance bronzes or, or miniatures. Well, what drew you to contemporary art? Uh, affordability, as much as anything else. Uh, you know, we couldn't collect Renaissance art because what was available was not was either not in good condition or, or actually not available. So through process of elimination, this is where we ended up, and very happy we did. Was it important to you to collect, you know, as it's often described, the art of your time, people who are contemporaries to you? I don't think so. Even today, uh, we're collecting uh, 21st century art. Occasionally, we'll make an exception if we are filling in. We like to collect in depth. And For example, uh, we haven't collected prints in God, at least 20 years, but if a Tyler graphic print in excellent condition by Frank Stella becomes available, we'll pursue it. But beyond that, we don't. And uh, we made a decision four or five years ago to, to uh, actually a little longer than that, because when, we, when we, we bought the condo in New York, we determined then we would only put 21st century works in this residence. And that's a very interesting bracket. It's 2018 and you've decided that you're only really co collecting post 20th century, 21st century works Which now. Which 2001. Move, as you move forward. forward. Yeah. Is that sort of somewhat arbitrary bracketing proving a discipline or is it difficult for you? Or? No, it's not difficult and it's been beneficial. I mean, in the last three, almost four years, we've, we've uh, put a lot of emphasis on African art and African-American artists. Not by design, we didn't start out determining we're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna switch our focus to African art but there's so much talent coming out of that continent and so much talent in the states coming from African-American painters etc you've mentioned something which was that you like to collect in depth which is is notable I mean a lot of people you're not a trophy collector you don't no. want one no. of this and one of that you really like to dig into an artist's oeuvre and support that artist yeah. we do our own research <clears throat> as well We've never had help. We've never had. We've never really retained anybody to uh, to help us put the collection together. Do you know? If, I mean, if we chose one artist, who would be the artist that you have the most work by, for instance? And how many pieces would you have? Probably would be a tie between Frank Stella and Jim Hodges, with uh, Ori Gerst, distant third, and Alex Soth. 
You're familiar with him, aren't you? I, I do know. He's okay. a remarkable, remarkable artist. We're actually showing him. Full disclosure. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to speak a little bit about, you're talking about African and African-American art, but you, somebody went and bought Cuban work very early and bought extensively in Cuba. Yes. Are you, are you looking at these areas because you feel that they've been overlooked or that they're undervalued in some way? Or, I mean, what, what's the motivation? Because, for instance, I know that you have been in India early looking at contemporary art in India, in China, mm -hmm. in Cuba extensively, and in, you know, African... American and the African diaspora. What's attracting you to those particular areas of collecting? Well, the first trip to Cuba, uh, first of all, there's a lot of crossover. And there are uh, Afro-Cuban artists that fit in the same category as some of the folks coming out of Ghana or Kenya or the other, the other African nations. Uh, went to Cuba seven years ago. I didn't know what I was going to do. Our agent was, was born in Cuba. He was at the time a, a dealer in Chelsea who really didn't deal in Cuban art, but was knowledgeable and uh, I don't, I know habla espanol, so it was, it was important for me to have somebody who could speak the language. So I didn't know what I was going to do and I became enthralled pretty, pretty quickly. Subsequently have gone back uh, almost every, this is the first year we've missed and, and we're, we probably won't go until sometime <coughs> next spring. I'm a little leery about going now and we got, uh, we, have a, we have a full plate, but I, uh, I think one of my favorite artists in Cuba is actually an Afro-Cuban. So we went to visit, the first artist we visited was uh, Juan Capote, and uh, went to a studio, and uh, I actually bought a painting on the spot. Uh, liked it, and, uh, and then started to uh, explore from there. We've never done business with a Cuban dealer, but I love meeting the artists. In the last 40 years, we've attempted to meet every every possible artist. Alex Soth is, uh, is one that I met recently and uh, met him in New York and uh, I sent our curator to Minneapolis to meet him, uh, to go to a studio. He is coming to Columbus in July to speak. Um, in fact, we're, we're reserving an auditorium at the museum because we, he'll, he'll bring a big crowd. Yeah, A lot of crossover between the Cubans and the, the Africans. It wasn't by design. We're going to start collecting Cuban art. We're going to start collecting African art. In fact, I didn't know Nick Cave was an African-American until after we bought a piece from him. Right. Um, Is it important for you to meet the artists or yes, not? Yes, absolutely. Because certain people don't want to meet the artists. I, 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 the anonymity. I, fortunately, we got to meet Dubuffet and de Kooning and Twombly and uh, some of the, uh, the masters of, of, the, of the last century while they were still alive. And, yeah, that's, you know, it is important. Uh, a couple of things that you've said that I'd like to pick, to, to pick up on. You said in your early days, you've been quoted as saying, I got tired of going to bars and cathedrals. When, uh, we're talking about <laughs> when, you travel, when you traveled. You said, I got tired of going to bars and cathedrals. So I wandered into a museum while on a trip to Europe, and I loved it so much. It sparked an exploration, and you started with yeah, museums and went into, then went into galleries. Came back. There was a gallery in Columbus, Mrs. Glimpshire, and uh, and then from there, I got to uh, the first first two years of collecting. We we only I think we did business only with Pace Gallery, and then it started to you know we started to spread out and started to do more exploration. You've also talked about how intimidating it was in the early days to go into galleries. Oh, it was. I'd walk in and. You know, introduce myself, and they would send a little snot-nosed girl out of the back room who would, uh, you know, would give you the time of day. And those days they're gone today. Well, sadly, but sadly, some of our colleagues still 
you know, I think treat people like that. They, oh, think, I, it, they think it's part of their sales technique and their mystique. I mean, we're, we, our view is the complete opposite, you know. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for us. Recently, I, uh, I went to uh, a gallery that I've, I've, I've gone to many times. I've never done any business there, and I've never felt comfortable. And uh, the, the now owner of the gallery brought, bought out his two partners, and I, the reason I went is that over the years I've gotten very close to the folks at CRG Gallery, and they closed last year, and uh, they had a, a stable of some strong artists that have gone elsewhere, and many of these artists have gone with with this gallery. It's actually Miles McHenry, who mm-hmm. I've just I've gotten to know and like very much, uh, but I had no choice if I'm going to continue to work with these artists, artists. Yeah, sure. and it's turning out to be a real a real real fine for me okay. uh, and I think for him too because we'll end up doing we'll end up, end up doing some business with yeah. him um, your collection's very extensive you've still got the first piece you bought but, yes. you, but you have on occasion sold things yes presumably you didn't need to well so it, what yes, was, what there was, was a time what, when we did need to. What was, what was the motivation? Well, in 2008, when the real estate market fell apart, we needed money. Right. So we sold a few pieces, and uh, my wife reminds me many reminded me many times we were lucky we had it because uh, we would have we would have you know, we would have survived. But it was uh, was was important. Uh, now I look back and I wish that uh, some of the things, some of the works we sold we could have today to uh, to resell them at, at their current value. But have you regretted selling them because you missed them in the collection? or You can't regret. You can't look back. It's like selling a stock and then uh, and seeing that it doubles in price the next day. You just move on. You know, there are artists that I've passed and, and have regretted, uh, but you know, can't win them all. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned this before, but Leo Castelli told me once when we worked together before Leo passed away, we shared an artist and we would meet every so often. And he once said to me, I asked him uh, if he'd ever regretted anything, uh, you know, what he had regretted in his career. And he said, the things I didn't buy, which I thought was a wonderful and revealing comment. Yeah, and, I can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, are there things that you that still stick with you that you saw that you wish you had today? Yes. That you didn't acquire? Yes. Anything notable? A Rauschenberg. I seldom put anything on hold. Uh, I'm usually pretty decisive, but I vacillated over a painting that uh, Marissa Del Rey had. In fact, she had, a, she had a warehouse full of wonderful things, but, and I kept looking at this Rauschenberg painting, and it was, I, don't remember the, I don't remember the title, but it illustrated the record-breaking hits that Roger Maris and, and Mickey Mantle. It was a screen print as much as anything else. I kept going back to the gallery, and I looked at it several times. So I walked into the gallery and decided to buy it. I had a car out front. I had to go down and tell the car to circle the block. I came back, and it was sold. And I said, that can't be. I don't know, less than five minutes it was sold. And I had looked at it over a period of three or four months. So, you know, the moral of the story is don't hesitate. But the reason I hesitated is that I, I, we had never bought anything that expensive. And it was just, it was a real, it was a reach for us. It was a reach then as much as a $10,000 maquette of Stella's was, you know, 10 or 15 years earlier. So that was a regret. Um, I, I, I can't have many. We, we've been lucky. We had a rector that we sold that I wish we still had. We sold a check close painting uh, that's, I could visit because uh, it was bought, uh, was gifted to the uh, to the Whitney immediately, so we could visit it. Do you go to art fairs? Do you visit art fairs? Do you buy at art fairs? Yes, all of the above. Is that is that? I mean, do you see that as a 
a very you know an accommodating way to see a lot of art very quickly and to make decisions or I know you spend a lot of time going to galleries yeah. and you have you know very specific relationships but are art fairs useful for you well they're of course they are useful it's one-stop shopping I personally think there are too many art fairs um, I try to uh, I, I seldom miss Art Basel I don't miss uh, Art Basel Miami either. We have a, an operation in Florida, so I'm down. I'm, I'm in the state often, but there are too many fairs, and I try to attend a, a a different one, a new one, almost every year. I've been to Bogota. Was it a waste of time? No. Seeing the country was beautiful, and found an artist there that was that, that's in our collection. Cuba. Cuba has a biennial every three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, either way, they keep no, it is. And frankly, it's it's. It's not that beneficial. I do better going to the artist studios, yeah. most of whom work on other homes. But it's an excuse to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is, yeah. You've talked a little bit, and we haven't gone into that yet, but we'll get there, about the collection. You keep referring to the collection. And, and you've also opened the collection publicly in the last few years, mm-hmm. which is an enormous boom for, for Columbus. So Columbus has, obviously, very important civic museums, and it has the Wexner Centre. You mentioned Les Wexner, who's a very long-standing friend. But you also have opened the collection to the public. And you're very involved with making the collection available to the public and also a lot of educational outreach through the collection. What was the motivation for doing that? I mean, there are all sorts of motivations for a collector. Well, we develop warehouses for a living. And uh, the vast majority of the collection is warehoused. My wife is surprised every day, every time we open a new, uh, a new exhibition, and she'll say, "I haven't seen that. I've not seen that." And so it was just time to start sharing. You know, just it was silly to to have as much art as we have and have it sit in racks. And is it your intention that it'll become a public institution, which is independent of you and the family? It probably will. But my guess is it'll end up being part of a larger institution. The collection itself will not go with the building. We have a great building. It's it's almost. 100 years old. It was actually built in 1923. So it's a few years shy of 100 years old. We gutted it. It's an 18,000 square foot building today on three floors, at least 16,000 feet of gallery space. So it's uh, we're able to do some, 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 yeah. some, fu- some fun things. How many years ago did it open? It's about four years it'll old. Be, it'll be five years, five years. Uh, in September of this and year. And is the audience building every year? The audience is building every year. Yeah, and, uh, and we're trying to... Do you charge admission? We charge admission. Yeah. We charge admission not to make money, because it certainly isn't a moneymaker. It's, you know, it's not a source of income when you look at our balance sheet. The, the income from, from admissions is, is, is insignificant. But it prevents people from uh, coming in to use the bathroom and uh, coming in and saying my kid could do that yeah. and, and we, we uh, there's some successful private museums in, in Miami and we've, before we did anything we visit them regularly we also spoke with the principals Rebels charge and two of the three main ones charge uh, Rosa de la Cruz does not Buddy Margulies donates all the proceeds to charity yeah. but we haven't been sorry all students regardless of age whether a two year old preschooler or an 80 year old student they come free and we uh, we were forced to give a senior discount as well you're very much a family business in many respects i mean your family is involved in your business in an extended way mm-hmm. have your kids who've grown up around you and Anne collecting and the collection are, oh, yes. they, are, are they influenced in a positive or negative way by being exposed to art from birth basically well i think it's been positive uh, all three of them collect 
and they're all clicked differently. Our oldest daughter goes to Freeze in London every year, and she and her husband deliberate and buy a significant work, whatever they could afford at the time. Our son is a little more active, and uh, is, is building up a pretty substantial, very nice, nice collection. Are they and collecting I, differently to the way that you and Anne collected? Or would, would oh they? yeah, they, they, you know, we started out very small. You know, we were buying inexpensive prints, and they've graduated. So they're they're they got, they're, uh, they're they're collected at, 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 at in a son's case at the same level as we are. So that's I mean obviously in many respects apart from the financial implications of that that's also about confidence that's right. about you know having a confidence to have been to have grown up around the art around the artists that they've seen you collecting and to have the confidence to kind of be you know be out there supporting artists at a certain level. Well, they're all savvy. <clears throat> Our youngest daughter is married to a to a fireman who's a pretty accomplished photographer so they have they have a, a strong interest in photography yeah so it's been it's been good it's been uh, it's been good for uh, for mom and dad have you ever had any aspirations to make work yourself no <laughs> i uh, I would have difficulty drawing. And if it. you did, what would you do? Do you think? Oh, I don't know. I'd probably not tell anybody or let anybody see. It. I can't draw a straight line without a ruler. So, I, and people people know me. Say, you know, you're crazy. You should really give it a try. But I've never really, never really had the interest. And uh, I'll probably never retire totally. So maybe someday I'll have a few extra hours, and I might sneak in the back room somewhere. And then. Do you collect in other areas other than other than contemporary art? I mean, do you collect jade boxes or you know uh, baseball cards? I don't no, know. My wife will tell you, my, and my son will tell you. I collect watches. If I had twelve arms, I would probably wear all of them at once. <laughs> and uh, and how extensive is that collection? Oh, I don't know. I've never really counted. My son uh, borrows them occasionally. Does he return them? Uh, occasionally. <laughs> That's good. Something that you've also spoken about, which I, I want to return us to the main uh, focus of the conversation, which is about your passion for collecting and, and collecting. We want this conversation to be very much about the pressures that are on the that, that are on the market generally, not just this conversation, but the broader conversation, collect wisely, about the pressures that are on the market through art fairs, through you know, younger galleries, pressures that are being exerted on everybody at every level. One of the things that you've talked about is that you've never bought for profit. You've never invested. You said somebody called you a few months ago uh, who wanted to interview you about collecting for profit. And you said, I told him he's talking to the wrong guy. It's the wrong way to go about it. And if you do that, you're going to get burnt. But it's become the norm for a lot of folks. I mean, in 40 years, you must have seen this market change enormously. Can you oh, talk, can you talk about, there are lots of different levels of collecting, lots of different types of collecting, and there are people who are investing, but we want to talk to people who are really passionate about collecting. Can you talk about the difference of what those two things mean? Well, we've never, uh, you know, I've been quoted many times, we've never collected for profit. I've never looked at a great painting or a drawing and say, well, this is going to be worth X number of dollars down the road. Our, uh, we, we've taken two groups to Havana uh, to look at art, and the first trip we took a fellow who, a man of means, who has spent, oh, I think close to a half a million dollars on Cuban art, and you know, and I, there, I, there isn't enough Cuban art to justify spending that much money in that in that country, and his comment on the way home, on the way back to the states, was, "How long should I keep this?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, when should I start selling?" 
And I said, if that's the reason you're doing this, you are going to get burnt, and he will. So we've never really done it. Now, have we made money? Yes. When we've sold something at auction this month, and it was a very profitable transaction. But I never, when I bought the painting, it was a small painting, and I never dreamt that we would ever sell it. And I didn't do it for profit. What was the motivation to sell it? This time, candidly, and this may sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, it increased in value so much uh, that I just said, you know, do I, would I rather pay off a mortgage or look at this little painting for the next 10 years? And I decided that we would pay off the mortgage and sold the painting. And we did sell it profitably. We were very happy with the results. I'll miss it. I mean, I've actually had somebody that we work with who we bought something very well for that became incredibly valuable ring me up one day and say, this thing is now worth so much money, it's making me uncomfortable, I can't have it in my house, I'm afraid it's going to get damaged or somebody's going to bump into it, and asked us to sell it, which we did. You know, which is a kind of interesting idea that something's making, you know, part of your collection's making you nervous in some way. Well, I can relate to that. Uh, a Mark Bradford painting went for $5.8 million. We own a very similar painting. I don't know, I, don't, I, don't, I think we paid maybe slightly over $100,000 for it. And I've, I've given some thought to selling it. I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but uh, years ago I bought wine futures. I bought 1982 Bordeaux wine futures. Went to Chicago, bought, from, bought it from a broker in Chicago, flew to Chicago, rented a truck, brought it back, and uh, we ended up with more wine than we'll ever drink. And all of a sudden I looked at what... <laughs> Well, I'll I'll be happy to share it. But uh, anyway, the broker, because of the quality of wine we bought, gave me two bottles of 1982 Chateau Petrus. And uh, so I brought them home, and they've been sitting at our wine cellar for the last, I don't know, since I think it's 1984. And we sold them for $15,000. And my son said, Dad, I'll drink them. And I said, hell you will. You know, <laughs> just for $15,000 I was. So there, there comes a point uh, in time. Uh, we reevaluate for insurance purposes pretty much twice a year, May and, May and November. After the auctions, we look at our own inventory. But we don't, you know, we go years without selling. Somebody anything. listening to this could say, this is a very successful guy. He's very wealthy now. His collection is worth an awful lot of money. But that isn't where you started. So did you get, you know, did, did you get lucky or did you have a good eye? Or how, how would you describe that trajectory? Oh, I think it's a combination. If, somebody, if somebody's looking backwards, it's very easy with hindsight to go, oh, well, now it's okay for him to say that. But if you're looking, you know, if you're at the other end of the journey, if you're at the beginning of the journey, you know, there is real passion there. And the passion led you. It wasn't about investing. And you could never have had any expectation 40 years ago that this would have led you to where you are today. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think it's a combination. Uh, a, I think I have a very good eye. B, I've been lucky. I've been lucky in the people with whom I've come in contact and the friends I've made, the dealers, the artists. I mentioned earlier, I love going to artist studios. We bought an early Chuck Close painting and I watched him make the work. And I went to, every time I came to New York, I went to the studio and he was very gracious. It was really fun for me. So it's, 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 it's a combination of things. I've got great friends in this industry. We've got some of the best dealers in the world and we are friends or acquaintances with some of the, the best artists in the world. That's what it's all about. So if there's a young Ron Pizzuti out there listening to this and they want to start, what advice would you give them? I tell them to go to an art fair preferably in New York, and to leave their wallet at home. 
and don't even think about buying anything until they can figure out what they like and what direction they want to go. We didn't intentionally go this route. You know, I, I, I people ask me all the time who my favorite artist is. It's nobody we've ever collected. It's Vermeer. Yeah, that would be difficult. Yeah, it would be very difficult. It would be impossible. I mean, he'd make enough work for one thing, and if it was never going to be available in my lifetime. So I, I tell them to leave their wallet at home and then start reading, then start going to galleries and start, you know, if possible, meet the artists. And eventually some of them will figure something out. Do you think you're quite analytical in the way that you collect, or are you quite emotional about your reaction to things? I think both. Things? I am uh, analytical about Alex Soth. I liked him from day one. Uh, we bought a photograph, and then I started to uh, do some research on him. I know a lot about him today. I think he has a great future. He's telling us he's going to do a uh, project in Columbus, Ohio, uh, which is nice. And I think he's an example of an artist that I didn't know. Just my gut tells me he has a great, great future. But you started with the emotional response. Oh, absolutely. But Your now, gut told you, and then gut, you've now, kind of filled in the but, information. But today afterwards. I'm methodical about it. Yeah. 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 The same way we approached Stella. When we got to the point where we could afford to buy Frank Stella prints and then subsequently drawings, paintings, and you know, he never liked to call us three-dimensional piece of sculpture. He does now. But we were very methodical about that and have try to fill in and cover each period. Each period that meant something to us. We didn't do much with him during the 80s. I wasn't really smitten with what, what he was producing. Jim Hodges, on the other hand, is in my opinion, is batting close to a thousand. He, uh, what I like about both of these artists is they both reinvent themselves over and over and over. Unlike a Joel Shapiro, or a Jim Dine for that matter, who really, I don't think Joel Shapiro has done anything original and you know, since he started making work about 40 years ago. Uh, and as a result, we have four Joel Shapiro prints that are in our, our Chicago office, and that's it. Those examples are already artists who made their reputations in the 20th century. Yes. How do you apply that criteria to artists post-2001 for, for, for what you're collecting now? How do you make those decisions, and do you believe that your batting average is as good as it was in, in the early part of the collection? Oh, it's better. It's better? Yeah, it's better today. Yeah. Wow, I, super I'm, interesting. I'm smarter. Um, and uh, I wish I had more time to devote to it, but I, no, it, it's, it's better today. And is it better because you're looking more or you're listening to what your peers are doing? No, I don't listen to what our peers are doing. <laughs> I never, I never have, you know, I just, I've never, never, uh, I was in the retail business for a long time and primarily women's retail and I never paid attention to trends. That's a brilliant place to start bringing our conversation to an end, Ron. That's fantastic. I have one last question for you. You've already partially subverted this and you've already partially answered this, so I'm going to ask you to reach deeper. If there was one artwork, if you were sitting in a, in a white room and you only had choice of one artwork to sustain you, visually and intellectually and emotionally, for the rest of time, it can be historical. It doesn't have to come from your collection anywhere in the world. What would that artwork I be? I think it would be a, one of the Vermeer paintings, projected light. His dark paintings were bright and beautiful. The Allegoria painting, for example, is just a, I, I think it's a, I'd love to own it. I'd probably, you know, we'd empty our warehouse if we could, we could swap, but that's not doable. I, beyond that, I don't know. I've never really, really, really thought about it, but... Uh, we have we do phase two of this interview. Maybe I'll have a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron, it's been a great, great pleasure to sit down with you today. Oh, Thank you for fun. sharing your passion and your uh, commitment to collecting the art and your 
great experience of doing so and uh, it's been a, an extraordinary pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Cheers.